have kind of like a second room in my Jody hotel room. Jody has a room. huge hotel room. Yeah. And it's unfair. And I have two bathrooms. Welcome to 538's election podcast pilot. Still not officially fully launched. We're kind of trying this out, but uh, this week we figured we'd try it out from the road. My name is Jody Avergan, and I'm here in room 437 of the Des Moines. That's way too much info. You don't want to tell them what room we're in? We're not going to be it's in not my room. We're not going to be in this room when they hear this. We tried to get room 538, but they wouldn't <laughs> let us have it. That is... Nate Silver joining me in room 437. Jesus uh, Christ. <laughs> We're going to be killed. <laughs> A bunch of us from 538 uh, have been reporting in Iowa all week. So that, of course, Nate Silver, editor-in-chief. Nate, I didn't give away your room. Welcome to the okay. podcast. Thank you, Jody. <laughs> and also here is Claire Malone, political reporter. Hey, Jody. And whiz kid Harry Enten. Harry. I welcome all visitors. I just want that to be known. I'm a lonely, lonely man, and I not, love Harry, visitors. You do not. <laughs> floor floor four of the Renaissance Hotel is very welcoming. And of course, if this uh, sounds a little different sound-wise, that's why it does. Um, so we've been here for a few days trying to connect our spreadsheets to what's actually happening on the ground in the weeks leading up to the Iowa caucus. And we'll talk about some of the rallies we attended and the speeches we saw. Meanwhile, back at 538 headquarters, we launched our first 2016 uh, forecast, our primary forecast. So we'll talk about that as well. We may get to the State of the Union, which happened this week. This is a pretty big week in politics. Um, but let's start where we always start, where we do this thing, uh, good use of polling, bad use of polling, trying to get a sense of how candidates and the media and others talk about polls, and we'll do it through the lens of what we've seen here in Iowa. So anyone want to flag, um, as we've sort of fanned out and seen candidates talk, any use of polling by the candidates themselves? Uh, I wonder who likes to talk about polls. I, I, I think Nathaniel and I were at the uh, Donald Trump rally in Cedar Falls on Tuesday, and Donald Trump talked a lot about polls. In fact, he spoke about more polls than I care to count. But there were two examples which he cited, which I thought were bad uses of polling. Specifically, he cited a CNN ORC poll from the state of Iowa, which is a scientific poll, but it's almost, I think it's over a month old. By what is ORC, ORC? Opinion Research Corporation. Okay. Um, they do the polls for CNN. And essentially, that poll is already a month old, but he cited it because it showed a favorable result to him, even though there have been a ton of other polls since then. So I thought that was a bad use. But Really, the worst use of polling that he used was he was citing online polls from Drudge Report, which are non-scientific, showing that he won the debates. Those don't show that Republican voters thought he won the debate. What those showed were Republican primary voters, maybe they're primary voters, they could just be anybody, went to Drudge after the debates and clicked on Trump's name and said that he won. But there's no guarantee that they only voted once. There's no guarantee it was a random sample. Essentially, it was worth nothing, but he cited it because it made him look good. Is it a little strange that Trump is the one – I mean, he's been the one who's who's riding high in the polls, so maybe not. But he seems to – in that, a weird way, you can make a case that he is the kind of like – the candidate of all of these who's most uh, interested in like in stats and polls the playbook, and empiricism. The playbook, well, he called him – well, he's not an empiricist. He's no. the most anti-empirical candidate, I think. Maybe he's run for office. But, but he he's the one who's citing the most stats. Well, I guess that's what I mean by the sort this of is veneer a long, of empiricism. Joe, this is a long and profound and deep philosophical distinction you're, you're getting at here, right? Where we got time. Citing, we're in my hotel yeah. room. 
Citing numbers and empiricism are yes. not the same thing. In fact, some of the things that we get most profoundly annoyed about are probably people who think, oh, you randomly kind of cherry pick a bunch of data and you um, reel off a bunch of numbers when you're talking and therefore you're being empirical and that's not really about it at all, right? Um, you know, Trump is cherry picking the polls he cites, but it is interesting though, the playbook says that you're not supposed to talk about your polls, there's no point in doing it if you're behind, and if you're ahead, well, then you raise expectations. It's kind of uncouth. Whereas Trump, I mean, a lot of his speech is very kind of self-justifying, right? The poll is the rationale that he gives for why what he's saying is right and just and popular and persuasive. Um, you know, so there is kind of this question of what happens if he does endure a loss here in Iowa, or maybe he there's finally something that sends his polls down a bit, you know, He's not really been challenging that yet since he's maintained his lead so consistently. At this point, we're late enough in the race where you can't rule out the possibility. He just winds up leading wire to wire. But still, you know, there is that chance, I think, that the bandwagon voters for Trump, if he starts to slip, that accelerates that trend. But by the way, he did. So I was also at this this Trump rally yesterday, and he did mention uh, that he was down in the polls in Iowa and, yeah. you know, in sort of a salty way saying like, Hey guys, come on, I'm not doing as well here as in other yeah, places. It's like, it was kind of like, what's wrong with you people in Iowa? I mean, right. almost in that tone. Right. Exactly. I mean, so he definitely is, he has a very good mind for, for strategy and tactics, I think. Right. I mean, I think he definitely, you know, you sometimes get the impression to me, the media council, Trump is totally prima donna has no idea about what it takes to win Iowa. I mean, he, he definitely kind of realizes number one, that, if he doesn't win Iowa, then everything changes. Number two, that, um, you know, you can't win Iowa purely with bluster. You need people to turn out. So there were a lot of reminders to get people to turn right, out. You wrote about this last night. There yeah. was registration tables. There were several reminders from the crowd about sort of how to caucus and who the precinct Bring captains were. Bring your ID, were. Bring all your of ID, those things, what to do when you get there. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it felt like a more normal, maybe in the Iowa context versus the national context, right? It feels like a bit more normal, sort of, right? Where you have volunteers who seem like, um, you know, they don't seem like politics people. They seem like Trump people who have been brought in to try and run a campaign, but they're aware of the need of people to caucus, and they give people instructions on, you can show up here at this time, and you'll have to listen to some speeches, but, but don't worry about it. You just have to write Trump on the ballot. Um, so they have some awareness of what it physically kind of takes to win, but, you know, maybe it's a little bit too late, and also I think the ratio of people who are committed caucus goers in that rally even even though they you know brave the cold it was like cold yesterday to go see trump oh it was they cold were not yesterday. that many hands up cold. when people said oh are you definitely going to caucus for trump raise your hand some people do some people don't yeah and just to point out he does i think a lot of his national staff are people that were brought in from the business side but his iowa team is run um by a guy named chuck loudner who who has run political campaigns here before so there is some you know some, some familiarity with so uh, I'll flag a, a use of polling. I don't know whether this was good or use. And it actually was a non-use of polling in that I w went to a, a Clinton event yesterday morning. And um, this was the Hillary Clinton's sort of first event that came in the wake of some polling that came out this week. So we're here in Iowa and we're on the ground. But of course, the, the polls follow us everywhere and we hear <laughs> about them. And they have this this really interesting sort of feedback effect. You've got, you have the polling and the way it manifests itself on the ground. And I think we saw that with Clinton at her event yesterday where harry do you want to just very briefly tell us kind of the the, the new the what was new about the clinton sanders race from the polling that came out at the beginning of this week and then i'll talk a little bit about how it kind of manifested itself in her stump speech sure so essentially the race in iowa had been seen as one in which clinton held a small lead 
probably in the high single digits to low double digits. And then all of a sudden we saw a wave of polling that came out this week that showed, in fact, a much tighter race, either Clinton with a small lead in the Marist poll, I think it was three points, or if you look at some other polling, in fact, showed Sanders with a small lead. In fact, he had never really led the race besides, I think, one Quinnipiac poll back in early September. And even in that poll, he didn't lead once Biden's choice was Biden's name was taken out of the equation. So all of a sudden, you see a very tight race here. You also see a tighter race nationally where Clinton has long held large leads over Sanders. There was the CBS News poll that had Sanders within seven points of Clinton. And in New Hampshire, which had been pretty much an even race, now does seem to be leaning a little bit more towards Sanders uh, leading in most of the polls that had come out there. So this, I from all accounts, the Clinton people knew this, and this was this really did affect the way that she started to uh, do her messaging. She, by all accounts, you know, I spoke to some of the other reporters who'd been on the trail with her um, for a longer time. In her speech that 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 she gave the the day after this polling came out, started to really attack Sanders in a way that she hadn't before. She didn't cite the poll, I think, probably for the reasons that you you mentioned, Nate, which is there isn't really an incentive to actively cite the polls. But she really, and especially on the issue of guns, really went after Sanders and by all counts offered her broadest critique. So it was just this really interesting moment to see, okay, this, this poll got released. Everyone's buzzing about it in Washington or in New York, but it does trickle its way down. And then you watch a candidate like Hillary Clinton give a give what was by, you know, in many ways, uh, a standard stump speech and very much addressing the sort of people in the room at Iowa State at Ames about the sort of mechanics of voting in Iowa, but then also doing this messaging to the cameras in the back and to the people in Washington and and, and New York about the sort the, the polling. Right. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, and guns is sort of the big place where she has to dig right. in on it. And I don't think, you know, it's been a pretty, on the Democratic side, you know, now I'm, there's a, there's a, a poll coming out from the Des Moines Register tomorrow that I'm kind of interested to see what's going to happen on the Democratic side of things. Because now it seems sort of like a little bit more of a, a, a scrappy race. Yeah, so what do we expect from that Des Moines Register poll, Nate? I mean, my best guess is that Clinton is a couple of points ahead here i don't know um you know on the one hand i think one should be a little bit suspicious when the polls move quite a lot when there's not like any major news events not like there was some big clinton scandal or some debate right it, it was just, just be, all of a sudden sanders is doing much better all than of a sudden thought. maybe it's voters tuning in a little bit more maybe it's the dynamics of clinton being attacked from every which way um whereas no one's really attacking sanders at all on the other hand you know empirically we know that when um when the polls move in the primaries, that movement sometimes sticks, um, you know, because voters change their mind a lot. And I think there's there's something here going on. Um, you know, with Clinton, the question is kind of how much to to dig in on Sanders and on what issues exactly. There's nothing that you would say resembles a negative campaign, really. Right. She's not bringing up any personal stuff there's not been a lot of discussion about that but the all. guns messaging is pretty is pretty spot on i mean yeah. she you know did a nice like three minute run in that speech yesterday but i wonder i mean sanders kind of owns this certain like progressive economic message and you know i think some people that i've been talking to here sanders seems to be sort of resonating with younger people clinton is maybe more older democrats and and you know people i were talking to were saying maybe De older people are more likely to caucus. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
you know, while he, his message might be <laughs> exciting some people from the progressive economic view. Well, 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 a few things. Number one, the polls do indicate, in fact, that the people who would be caucusing for the first time on the Democratic side are more likely to favor Sanders than those who have caucused before. Um, but in terms of the guns issue, I think that this is something that the polls have shown does resonate with Democratic voters, that they do not like Sanders' viewpoint on guns being maybe not as in favor of gun control over the years, being from Vermont. So I think it's the type of line that could work. And keep in mind, we're still a little less than three weeks out from Iowa. The polls at this point are going to get more predictive. But even now, it wouldn't shock me at all to see Clinton regain a 10-point lead in Iowa. There's still plenty of time. It also wouldn't shock me if Sanders won by 10 Yeah, this is what people Iowa. are. We were seeing people on Twitter kind of saying, how can this happen? Clinton had a 15-point lead. Now it's tied. Well, that's what happens all the time in polls of Iowa and New Hampshire, right? Which is why, you know, we didn't have our model um, running until yesterday officially. But if you looked at our model, the polls-only version, um, in December, it'd say, yeah, Clinton has a 15-point lead, and she's a favorite, but not a runaway favorite by any means, right? That's still a margin that's very closable in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire. You mentioned the model, and we'll talk a little bit more about kind of what it is and how people can use it and what went into it. But... Uh, it, one other question I've seen on, on Twitter is this question that's, I think, coming up more and more, which is, what happens if Sanders wins both Iowa and New Hampshire? And it's, we, we heard that question asked more and more in the wake of this poll. Then there's Do you a... want to just give us like a little context <laughs> and perspective, Nate? And especially, you know, since so, our model you know, is kind of doing a little bit of that. Yeah, you write a lot of things in the campaign, some of which look smart, some which look dumb. One of the smart things we wrote was back in July, um, pointing out how... Sanders could easily win Iowa and New Hampshire and then not win very many other states. The reason being that his constituency is and was and, and maybe always will be white liberals. Um, out of every state, the three states with the most white liberals in the Democratic electorate are Vermont, where he's from, New Hampshire, and Iowa. Um, it's pretty white here if you haven't yeah. noticed. So it's really, I mean, it's... And, <laughs> a, and the caucus turnout's pretty progressive, right? Lots of yeah. students... It's a good demographic for Sanders. Um, you know, is there enough momentum in the world for him to win South Carolina, which is a state with a lot of black voters and a lot of, they still exist, believe it or not, moderate white Democrats, you know. I mean, if he wins South Carolina, yeah, then, then everything we, we know. But I think, I think Clinton has a 40 or 50 point lead there. You know, in some ways, the scarier for member for Clinton is like this poll showing she's only up by eight points nationally. If that's right, then that in some ways is scarier for her um, than losing Iowa and New Hampshire. Losing Iowa and New Hampshire is going to be a media shit show um, because the media kind of blew its wad a little bit on Clinton. Like before, I think that might tamp it down a little bit. Um, but that seems very survivable. On the other hand, if Bernie is, um, you know, within five or ten points nationally and then gets some momentum and then maybe has more of a ground game in the caucuses, then it's a real race. Um, let we we got to move on because there was some some Trump versus Cruz kind of polling in Iowa, and the latest Des Moines Register poll has Crump has Cruz Trump. up Crump. Trump. <laughs> that's the, get, that's the Donald get, get Crump <laughs> has uh, Ted Cruz up by three points. That's in the Des Moines Register poll, and that Quinnipiac has Trump up by two points. So is this Harry? Is this 
tightening again after it felt like Cruz was was pulling away, or is this just another like it's a close race? I, I think that part of the reason we think that this race is quote unquote tightening is because of the Des Moines Register poll out in December had Cruz up by ten points, but no other poll had Cruz really up by that wide of a margin. So now the polls have come in, the Des Moines Register having Cruz up only three, but that matches what the average of polls has had all along. If you look at our polls-only forecast, we do see that Cruz, for the most part, has held a, you know, maybe a small lead, but really closer to even. So this race has been tight looking at only the polls, but the better polls, or not really the better polls, but the polls that look mostly at those who have turned out in past caucuses calling registered lists of voters, voters that we know are actual voters, not just people who could pick up the phone and say they're a registered voter, have tended to show that Cruz does lead this race by a small margin. But, but, and this is key, Cruz does better on a whole host of issues, including having a much higher net favorability rating than Trump does. And 75. Was his, was his, Whereas was Trump's favorable are, are not very good here. Yeah. No, in fact, the Des Moines Register poll had Trump's favorable rating at only 54% and his net favorability at only plus nine, which is the worst net favorability he has registered in that poll since entering the race. So one way to put it, I think, is that Trump has one way to win Iowa, which is that if he gets all these kind of Trump curious voters to turn out, he's drawing from a much larger universe than candidates normally drew. And if that's, if that's true, then there's like almost nothing Ted Cruz or Rubio or anyone else can do stop it. Yeah, but that's saying they they turn out, right? If they turn out, right? Mm -hmm. Cruz, though, has, you know, no one ace in the hole, but a lot of different ways to win. With the ground game, with other candidate supporters dropping off, Ben Carson's still at 10%. Um, I don't think he's going to stay at 10% by election day. It looks like Cruz is is the second choice of a lot of Carson voters, for example. Um, You know, Cruz could plausibly still get some big endorsements coming in I, he's a lot of you know different kind of tools in his basket, but but still I don't know. I almost want to say that um, famous last words. I almost want to say that Trump's chances are are a little underrated in Iowa. Did I just say <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, Claire, Claire, you did this uh, this this great piece yesterday where you kind of sort of set up some reporting about uh, the 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 media diet of uh, of you know Iowa voters and kind of what they're subject to in terms of messaging. So. Can you connect that to these poll numbers? I mean, who are they hearing from? Trump, Cruz, and we should mention Rubio, too, because we, we all kind of think this could maybe be a three, three-way race soon enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty well known that um, Iowans get blitzed with all kinds of campaign advertisements, super PAC advertisements, um, pretty much after the new year. So, um, so I've been following around a few people and sort of tracking and trying to quantify their daily interactions with campaigns. And and right now it seems like, you know, I was talking with a woman yesterday who's a registered Democrat, actually used to used to caucus libertarian, but now she's a Democrat. Um, and she's had both Clinton and Sanders people knocking on her door. Um, she said she sees on TV mostly Clinton and Rubio ads right now. Um, Rubio has has just spent, I'm looking here at $9.4 million to buy 7,000 ads in Iowa running running for this month so that's a it's a huge huge number um i was over at someone's house this morning they were watching tv and um we saw at least three or four rubio ads going through so it it really it really is showing now um yeah and harry what about rubio i mean should we just start mentioning him regularly where does he stand well well, 
like Cruz, he is very well liked by Iowa Republicans. His net favorability rating is plus 50 percentage points. But more than that, if you look at the Des Moines Register poll of points— Sorry, can you just clarify? Yeah. Net favorability so is So net just... favorability is the favorable rating minus the unfavorable rating. Right. Um, and so big is good. Big is good. <laughs> you want big and positive. Big and negative is very, very bad. Yes. All right. Go ahead. Um, but if you look at the Des Moines Register poll, it, it shows something rather interesting, which is that if you look at the voters who are most likely going to change their mind, who haven't yet— who aren't yet certain of who they're going to vote for. It's about 56% of voters. Those types of voters do not look to me like really Trump or Cruz voters. They tend to be better educated, college or greater. They tend to be wealthier, $75,000 or greater. And they tend not to see themselves as being members or supporting the Tea Party. These are the types of voters who could support Marco Rubio, who might now be supporting a Jeb Bush or Chris Christie or might be undecided. If those voters all of a sudden start seeing a lot of Rubio ads and Rubio is going to be visiting the state a lot, there could be a coalescing of support. And that's part of the reason why I think, you know, if you look at our polls plus forecast, you see Rubio doing better in that than our polls only forecast. And he has a lot of endorsements from elected officials. And don't be surprised if you see more of those drop coming into the Iowa caucus, including maybe one from, I don't know, Joni Ernst. She said she probably wouldn't. But endorse, but you never know. You never know. Your right. Brandstad, your probably, probably not. Um, so we should just mention. Well, you mentioned polls only versus polls plus. That's a that's our model Modeling, speak, and yeah. we will get to that in a second. <laughs> sorry for get, that. F- sorry for jumping too far out ahead. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but but Nate, we should just sort of do a. Uh, a catalog of the of the cam- candidates that we've seen, right? We, we've collectively have been to a Trump event, a Clinton Sanders O'Malley forum. We went to a Jeb Bush event. So you want to talk a little bit about that experience? I mean, it was a, it fired you up. Dear, it was a, dear diary, fired me up. Nate's campaign. <laughs> it was at a big gun accessory. It was a gun accessory factory. <laughs> very sleek looking, kind of cool looking factory. It was very um, nice. But, you know, definitely the people you see at that rally seem cut from a different cloth than the Trump voters we saw later that day. Um, They're more kind of patrician-looking. They look more like the Mitt Romney crowds that we saw a lot in New Hampshire. It's very sedate. More sedate, right? They're kind of low energy. Right. In your report, you (laughs) said it was kind of maybe a little surprisingly just like intellectual and low-key and oh, measured. People were asking very smart questions. Bush, Bush, he was good, by the way. But nothing Bush that made was, you say, okay, this guy's going to, like, catch fire. He, no, it's yeah. like, you know, you, it's kind of like, well, Bush is at 5% in the polls, and, like, these are kind of the 5% of Iowans I would expect to be Jeb Bush voters. And, you know, Bush is actually, in a one-on-one setting, pretty good, right? For some reason, one thing you do see, seeing the candidates one-on-one without the media filters, you see, you know, candidates from... From Jeb to O'Malley, that kind of seem to get stage fright when they're up there with other candidates. Um, Jeb can was, be perfectly Jeb was, effective. Yeah, on, he was yeah. good. At, he was good in the town hall circle. He was sort of, you know, um, he circled. But one man asked a question, and then ten minutes, twenty minutes later, he circled back to him and said, "I don't think I answered the rest of your question." Like it was, it was a very sort of. Yeah, it's atta- a nice reminder that these are like very smart and accomplished but the people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the yeah. impression that he's kind of the right candidate for the wrong time, or at least the right candidate for the wrong time in this state, you know, that was reinforced, I guess, too, yeah. by the year. And you also went to a Santorum event in a bookstore, is that right? Yes. And um, I, 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 we were talking about, Harry, you and I were talking about Santorum a little bit, which is, like, 
it is kind of amazing when you just step back and say, here's a guy who won this thing last cycle, and now people seem to want nothing to do with them. How How is that possible? I think it's a few things, but, you know, one of the key sort of factors that seems to be driving voter opinion in this race is they want something new. Mm-hmm. And most of that is focused on wanting something new in the quote-unquote establishment lane, Rubio beating you know, Bush and beating Christie and all of that. But in the maybe anti-establishment lane, whatever that exactly means, we're seeing that as well. We're seeing that Ted Cruz is doing significantly better than our Mark Huckabee or Rick Santorum. And it's not only that he's doing better in the horse race polls, uh, the horse race numbers, we're also seeing that in the favorability numbers where Cruz's favorability is much higher than is either Santorum or Huckabee. Well, because Cruz was also in the news in the in the you know in the interim years between the between the elections cycles. You know, he was he was making the green eggs and ham speech. You know, he was he was uh, being an ass, being an asshole in Washington, right? Like that's he was he was <laughs> that's on the Cruz brand. <laughs> that's the... <laughs> um, let me give you like another an alternate theory, right? Which sounds heretical, even though it's kind of obvious in some ways, right? Which is. Maybe instead of being a really weak field of candidates, this is a really good field of candidates. A really well, I've been, deep well field. that's kind of a year ago. I think yeah. that's what I heard you saying that we have a really, really so strong kind of GOP field. Objectively, then, quote unquote, in terms of look at the credentials as measured by you know number of terms in office, and these people are coming from big, large population states or major swing states. Um, objectively, it's a really well qualified field. Maybe when things are filtered through the media lens, where you know what if you have. 13 candidates, it's hard to get more than 8% in the polls. And if you're at 8%, then the way news coverage is, up and down, horse race, you're going to look like a weak candidate. But but maybe kind of in some grander sense, you have a lot of talent. Um, they're kind of canceling one another out. The fact that Trump differentiates himself from the pack is effective. You know, I sometimes wonder, um, Shantorum or whatever, you merge Huckabee and Santorum together? Hakorum. Hakorum. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure they but like maybe they kind of neutralize one another. If you had just one, then at least in the media firmament you can kind of say, Well, and here's the evangelical candidate, right? But mm-hmm. if they don't kind of have that role carved out, also by the way, you had Ben Carson a factor for a long time in this race. By the way, Ted Cruz um is himself, I think this is right, but is himself an evangelical, despite Donald Trump's questioning of um yeah. of that fact, right? And yes. he uh had a strategy early on where sort of like Jeb Bush many years ago realize that we can cross over between being a mainstream conservative and evangelical conservative and try and go for both constituencies. But Fusion is a great American tradition, both in food and politics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a network. And start a network. Start a network. The ABC Disney um, family. Of- <laughs> okay, let's talk about uh, the forecast that launched this week. Uh, Nate, you landed in Des Moines, and the first thing you did was go to your hotel room and finish up the, the <laughs> forecast. But then you, really seeing the sights I know, here. But then you got out, um, you know, and went to some events and so forth. But um, this is, you know, in many ways, the thing that people think of when they think 538. This is uh, our polling aggregation that then tries to offer a prediction of how an election is going to go. Uh, Nate, do you want to talk briefly about the decision to do a primary forecast this year and then also this notion of kind of two models going on at the same time? So, you know, you want to talk about kind of deep existential questions. What purpose does a forecast model 
serve is one question, right? When does a model quantifying what you know, um, setting a whole objective set of rules, when does that work better than saying, you know what, I'm going to look at data and then kind of give you my subjective impression of it? Um, I think it's very, very hard to model the overall primary process to kind of go through and say, given this whole complicated set of circumstances, what's the odds of any one candidate winning? But state by state, you can do something pretty reasonable. You can say, for example, um, like we were talking about earlier, let's say that you have a 15-point lead in the polls, but it's six weeks before a caucus or a primary. How firm, how solid is that lead? How often does that translate into you winning the state? Let's say that you're, like Marco Rubio, in third place in Iowa, um, um, a fairly distant third place, but that first place still has 25% of the vote, not insurmountable. How do you turn that into odds? So the model can answer those questions. The reason we have two models is that um, we're kind of known for polling aggregation. Um, so we have one model called polls only, which is just state polls. Um, what we call the polls plus forecast also polls incorporates... Plus. Polls Plus. It's fun to say. <laughs> polls um, Plus. It's like some insurance plan, yeah. right? <laughs> we, we don't... We, High deductible they're, for... They're polls. both free. We don't charge in a premium for Polls Plus. They're both right. totally Although free. Although you may can send me money. blood pressure, depending on which yeah. candidate you You support. have to pay PayPal Harry $2 <laughs> every time you cite a Polls Plus. Or just slide <laughs> the money under the door of 437. So, <laughs> Nate, um, what is the Polls is Plus riveting. model? <laughs> so Polls Plus uh, incorporates endorsements in addition to polls, and so it kind of deliberately, because empirically this works puts a finger on the scale for establishment-supported candidates. Again, that's not our preference necessarily. We think it's kind of boring when the establishment wins out. But historically, empirically, if you have two candidates who are tied in the polls, one with more endorsements, the more conventional choice tends to see those polls age better over time. It also looks at the gap between state polls and national polls. So usually when a candidate is overperforming his national polls, that's a good sign. And when they're underperforming their national polls, as Trump is, say, in Iowa, that's a bad sign. That can indicate kind of weaknesses that are pertinent to the locality that tend to get worse as a campaign goes on. Which one do you trust? I mean, the answer is that um, if it's an ordinary campaign cycle that kind of resembles the average of campaign cycles and since 1980, then polls plus should be a little bit more accurate. Um, you know, polls only we publish for, for two reasons. One is that we know we have some readers who want to say, you know what, I don't want your 538 fundamentals. I want your secret sauce. I just want you to tell me how the polls translate into odds. That's mm -hmm. a totally legitimate request we get all the time from readers. In fact, you know, we might do a version of that too for the general election where we're going to give multiple versions because we know readers want to use our technology in different ways. But the other reason is that, you know, maybe this time really is different. We haven't seen a lot of people vote so far. Certainly, even if you're kind of stubborn about saying, well, the polls don't mean very much. We have people to vote. Um, you know, it's not been a year that's gone by the playbook so far. So we are, you know, I mean, I think we're perfectly happy to say that we're hedging our bets a, a little bit, and that reflects the best understanding that we can have of the landscape. And, of course, this will get more and more, hopefully, reliable as we get closer and closer to Election Day. Yeah, and, and day. one other thing, too, is that as you get closer to Election Day in each state, those two forecasts will, will tend to converge. Right now in Iowa, polls only has burning Hillary almost tied. Hillary's at 55%. Polls plus is Hillary at, what, 70 Polls Plus has Hillary percent? at 73 and Sanders at 27. So that's a pretty big right? swing, right? Over time, those will tend to converge. And Harry, you know, we, we 
if you click around on this interactive, which we encourage people to do, and if someone clicks on, say, a South Carolina primary or a Nevada primary, we say we don't have enough data right now because there isn't enough recent polling. So how? So give us a sense of the projection of this. You know how how will this tool get updated? When do we hit that threshold of en- enough data that we're comfortable with putting out a forecast? Sure. Essentially, we're waiting for a new poll to be taken in South Carolina. We haven't had no polls taken in that state this entire year, this year being 2016, obviously. Sure. The cycle we've had 13 polls. days, but Th- yes. 13 days. But we're waiting for n- new polls. A lot of the polls have been concentrated in Iowa and New Hampshire, and we simply don't feel comfortable making a actual forecast for those states until we get new poll yeah, information. Yeah, we're not demanding that much. If we had had – we're going to turn the South Carolina forecast on probably as one, as long as, soon as we have like one non-crappy South Carolina poll. It could have come – Today, you it's know, a call for a debate, polls. Yeah, debate. if you're listening, stop listening. Go do a poll. Go <laughs> out a poll. Email it to us. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, we need to start to wrap up. Uh, we are here for um, a few more days and are going to continue to report. So we encourage people to to see our sort of rolling coverage on the site and, of course, go and play around with the primary forecast. But uh, Claire and Harry, you know, what else is on your list of things to, to check out while you're here? Well, you know, I've I've sort of been enjoying just sort of driving around and, like, getting the actual scene and, like, seeing all the billboards. There are a lot of Ben Carson billboards here, mm-hmm. which I found pretty interesting. Um, and maybe, you know, hit a couple more events. I think there are a lot of... There are a lot of campaigns coming in for the weekend, so maybe we'll we'll yeah. see a few more people. And uh, and you are going to keep your eye on that kind of media diet thing as yep, well, that's my, that's which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Harry and I might do a little something of that, sort of how much um, you are sort of inundated with during prime time. The one thing that I've always wanted to do is the Des Moines Register keeps its polls very close to the chest until they publish them. You, Harry, you're going to... Well, you're going to break into the Des Moines Register? No, I'm not going to do that thing where you like descend on wires from the ceiling and span out. I'm not breaking in anywhere, but I'm hoping because they're going to publish it in the higher security guards tonight. (laughs) They're they're going to tell. Nerd. I'm not going to do anything illegal, but I'm hoping that if I hang out in some place which gets the newspaper delivered early, that I could get the poll result before it's posted online. Des Moines residents, Harry Enton is going to steal your newspaper. Uh... You know, I was interested. It's you know, it's a big state, guys. Yes. <laughs> Huge it's, state. It's a big state, but you Huge. don't sense. So I went to uh, New Hampshire four years ago. In New Hampshire, everything is much more concentrated, and it kind of has this like, I've been to the Final Four before, right? Or the Super Bowl. It kind of has this feeling where like everyone's kind of living and breathing yes. and talking politics. In Iowa, it's like kind of more, more low key. It doesn't. It's there, right? But it doesn't kind of permeate daily life. Yeah, it's absolutely worth saying that out loud, that a lot of people that we've spoken to just, like, aren't that engaged and probably aren't oh, yeah. going to be that engaged. The contests are low right. turnout. Tons, so it's tons of people contest. I've talked to have said, I do not pick up my phone if I don't recognize the number because it's a campaign calling mm-hmm. or it's a poll calling. People are actively trying to avoid it. Yeah, so it but is it's worth a narrow, people, people, I think, that. miss that, right? It's a fairly narrow segment of Iowans and a peculiar segment in some ways that actually will turn out to vote. And you and you do kind of sense that here, whereas you sense the opposite in New Hampshire where everyone and their neighbor is going to turn out for those primaries. You know, I don't want to get too much into touchy-feely stuff, but you, you feel that a little bit mm-hmm. when you're driving around the states. 
Um, okay, so we encourage people to go to the site and continue that. Um, if you have any thoughts on this podcast or what we should be covering as the weeks go on, uh, you can send an email to podcasts at 538.com or find any of us on, on Twitter or on the site. Uh, thanks for listening. We're continuing to pilot for a few more weeks, and then we will officially launch. So we will talk to you soon.